Exodus chapter 20, and our reading is brief indeed tonight. Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are ever mindful that you are the one who speaks to us through Scripture. Truly, Christ speaks today through his word and spirit. We are all the more mindful on these few occasions when you speak from heaven to your people. It's such indeed an important, significant topic for all the earth, for all those who have ever lived, this moral law. Well, Heavenly Father, how we pray that you would help us to understand not only the law, but the lawgiver. We pray that you would open our hearts and minds to receive it as we recognize that the natural human heart hates God and hates his law, but we pray that you would do your work, that we might love you and your law. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Come at last to Exodus chapter 20, to the giving of the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God. Let us now reflect at the outset on the nature of law. Despite what some of you may have been told, the moral law is not and could not be something that is impersonal. Now, I'm fully aware that there are lots of uh, efforts and have been efforts to make some sort of uh, atheistic ethic that operates with uh, no person involved at all. It's just something that you... You determine through reason, and uh, everyone has to be obedient to it somehow. But let me say that the quest for an atheistic ethics, an atheistic morality, is the greatest failure in intellectual history. There are many failures, but that's the greatest. It is utterly impossible to come up with any kind of morality that does not, in the end, rely upon the living God. There must be a lawgiver behind the law. And the existence of any real law requires there to be a lawgiver behind it. It's very simple. And moreover, there is an intimate relationship between the lawgiver and his law. The law is an expression of the character of the lawgiver. If, if there is a good man, he's going to make good laws. We see this even in households. If there is a good father, he makes good rules. If there is a bad father, he makes bad rules. Well, writ large, that is surely the case with the moral law, and that a good God makes good laws. It is a transcript of, in fact, his character. Let us not imagine that he makes these things as kind of extrinsic to who he is, that he picks these things out of the air and says, I want you creatures to do these things. Actually, these things are a summary of his own perfect moral character. And it is just his own perfection, his own holiness, written down in words for us to receive. And, okay, so there's a very close relationship between the lawgiver and his law, but there's also a close relationship uh, with us between our attitude uh, towards the law and our attitude towards the lawgiver. Again, we think that these things can be disconnected. That somehow we can have a relationship with Christ, we can have a relationship with God, that is apart from a relationship with this law, but that's not the case. 
Whatever we think of the law is the way we think of the lawgiver, and whatever we think of the lawgiver is the way we think of the law. To the extent that we are inclined to obey the law is the same extent to which we are convinced that we owe obedience to the lawgiver. Let's take an example. There are many uh, who would make laws in the world today. One of them is ISIS. The ISIS makes uh, laws for their so-called caliphate in the Middle East. But I'm under no obligation to ISIS. Indeed, my nation, our nations, are sworn enemies of ISIS. And so I and you, we can openly flout the laws of ISIS. We're thankful not to be under them. They mean nothing to us. But we certainly cannot do that with the laws of the United Kingdom, in my case, of the United States as well, because, of course, our relationship to the lawgiver, we owe obedience. Well, friends, again, so much, much, much more so it is with the living God. Only those who imagine that they owe no allegiance and, in fact, are sworn enemies of God Imagine that they can flout the laws of God. But unlike the case of ISIS, uh, we are speaking against the legitimate lawgiver of all the earth, as we're going to be reminded, of all flesh who have ever existed. And all will soon enough give account to him. Well, in these opening verses, God is reminding the people who he is and why they should obey his law. And the title tonight is The Lawgiver Speaks. The Lawgiver Speaks. And there are three very, very simple children. I've done my best to give you very simple points tonight. Just three of them. God, Lord, and Redeemer. First of all, God. It says in verse 1, And God spoke all these words. This is not the first time that God ever gave us the moral law. We know that the moral law was written into the conscience of every human being. From the very beginning, it was so. But because of sin, that law has become very much distorted. Let's just say again that there is nothing, nothing contradictory about the law that is given here in the Ten Commandments and that which is in every heart. Ones who have never heard the word of God and have no contact with a Christian tradition whatsoever. The moral law is in their hearts as well. And it is on that basis that God will one day judge them. But because of sin, it's really twisted. We know from Romans chapter 1 that sin twists what we see. Whatever we know, whatever might be out there in nature, we twist it. Whatever might be in our own hearts, we twist it. So much so that the law sometimes seemed to do not very much good. Such is its darkness that man has brought it to. But God in his goodness is here giving far more clearly in special revelation, meaning through actually speaking in words, verbal revelation, giving us his law. And he is distinguishing it by the more direct revelation of it. God has been speaking in all sorts of ways. In this very huge book, all of it is the word of God, inspired by God. All of it... Absolutely true and authoritative. But there are certain parts that God particularly distinguishes by his more direct involvement. Same thing with history. He he reigns over all of history, but there are certain points which he intervenes in a more direct way. And just like that with his word, he is speaking directly to the people 
in order to give it, to underline it and highlight it just a little bit more. Now, uh, he's going to also write it down with his own finger on tablets of stone, just a reminder indeed of the permanence of it. So it's both the importance that brings him to speak directly in these things and also of its permanence that it will be written down by the finger of God on the tablets of stone that will be preserved. Well, let me say then he spoke, but it is God who is speaking. God spoke. Who is God? What is he to man? It's a good question. He is the creator. Genesis 2, 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Friends, our relationship to God is pretty far away from that of being a peer. You know, in this, this world today, we, uh, we imagine that we're on familiar terms with absolutely everyone. Everyone has their Facebook and Twitter, and you can sign up to be on the twi- Twitter of, you know, some celebrity, and you imagine that you're, you're just friends with them. Well, maybe you are, indeed, with people, but we are not that with God. He formed us out of the dust of the ground, Okay. Um, I don't think that's uh, accidental. God didn't do anything accidentally or out of caprice. He did so in his wisdom so that we would never forget who we are in ourselves. The, the eternal God, the only entity in the whole universe throughout eternity. You understand, again, it's a lie to imagine that this universe is infinite. It's not. It's finite both in its extent and in its time and duration. God alone is infinite. And from all eternity, he's the only thing that was there. And he creates, he speaks, the universe is created. And then he creates some dust on the earth. He doesn't make us out of stars. He doesn't make us out of gold or something like that. He makes us out of dust. He creates some dust one day and he breathes the life, uh, the breath of life into this dust and brings us into being. Well, that's us. If you want to know what we are in ourselves, it's thus that, that God formed someday. And he has, has bestowed upon us a status of living creatures. And what is more, bestowed upon us the status of having a conscience, of being able to be morally accountable, of having an eternal soul. All of these things he has bestowed upon dust. So a book isn't there called From Dust to Glory. And it points out the amazing, amazing journey of dust to, seat, to be seated in the heavenlies with Christ. It's an amazing journey indeed. But let us not forget what we are in ourselves. Dust of the earth. And there is an infinite distance. Not, not a finite distance. Not a sort of distance that there might be between us and those of much higher status in this world. But a fully infinite dust between creature and creator. And let me, let me say, lest we think that this relationship has been diminished over time, that once he was the creator of dust, and now we have worked ourselves to a much closer status, and he has been diminished, he's no longer God the creator over time. Let me say, keep, keep in mind that he's also the sustainer of all things. God at once, in the course of six days, created all things, but since then all those things have been sustained by him. Right Again, we don't think that the universe is possessed of its own existence. If God were to leave it, you know, everything requires maintenance in this world. If we leave any of our things 
uh, to themselves, they will eventually break down and stop working. We have to keep doing things. We have to keep bringing our cars in for maintenance or they'll fall into disrepair and they'll stop working. Well, the whole universe is like that and more. Apart from God's moment-by-moment upholding of the universe, it falls into nothingness, into non-being. And so he sustains it. Hebrews 1.3, who being the brightness of his glory and express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. This is the son of God. He upholds all things. He's a creator. He's also a sustainer right now. So you dust, dust speck, and you think about God, you're not thinking about him as a peer, but one who is at this moment through the word of his power sustaining your existence because that's just how insignificant you are in yourself. Something that apart from the, the moment-by-moment intervention of an infinitely uh, powerful being, you would not even exist. And he is the lawgiver. You think in terms of nature, he is at infinite distance of being our creator and our sustainer. What is more, in, term, in moral terms, he has ever been the lawgiver for man. From the very beginning, as I say, we can be certain that he wrote the whole moral law upon the conscience of Adam. But then we have this word. Very, uh, the Lord God is speaking to to man as he's freshly created them in Genesis chapter 2 verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. First words he speaks. It is part of the relationship between God and man that he is the lawgiver. That's who he is. He could not be otherwise. He's the holy God. And for those whom he he creates and deigns to give us an immortal soul to, he must be their lawgiver. And he is also their judge. He's not just a judge, by the way, of the people in Exodus. He's not just a judge of those of us who are in church because we've decided to make him our judge. He is the judge. That's what Genesis 18.25 says. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That's what Abraham understood God to be. Abraham had less theology than we do, but that much is absolutely true. He is the judge of all the earth. And every last human being will one day meet him as such. He's the judge. And this is God, friends. He is infinitely qualified to be the lawgiver of all living. He is God by nature at infinite distance from us. He is the one who gave us the law and he is the one who will judge us accordingly. Now, let me say then that therefore he is, he is qualified to be infinitely so, the, the lawgiver for every human being in the world that has ever existed. But if it were possible, and I understand some of you know maths more than I do, if it's possible to add to that infinite obligation, then it is even more so for his own covenant people. They are even more obligated to obey him. So secondly, Lord. We go from God now to Lord. And he says, I am the Lord your God. This is the covenant name of God, Lord. It's a reminder of what we have in Exodus, and Exodus chapter, uh, you know, not so long ago, in Exodus chapter 3, we had a sermon on the name of God, and it tells us about his nature. God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. He is the self-existent one. 
And there's only one of those. He's the creator, we are his creatures. But beyond telling us something about his nature, it tells it is his, his proper name, his personal name. Everyone knows God. The whole universe, the whole world knows of the living God, even if they deny it. But not everyone knows that covenant name. Even the people of God didn't always know it. In fact, in Exodus 6.3, he says to Moses, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. This is his personal name. It's, it's, it's a revelation beyond which even Abraham had of all that he knew, and he was already in covenant with a living God. This is his covenant name given, revealed to his covenant people for those whom he has a special relationship to. I've mentioned it before, and it's probably not... I've said, look, let's not imagine that God is like a peer, and let's never be on overly familiar terms with him. But it is true that he has chosen to reveal, as it were, his first name. Uh, Not everyone knows. Those who are in authority, not everyone knows their name. And not everyone can be on first-name basis with those who are much higher in status. Indeed, I'm soon enough to spend some time on, on active duty... I'm not on first-name ba- first basis with the admiral. Uh, I, I know them only by their last name. But there are some who are admitted to a more intimate relationship, and so it is with God. He has given us the name Lord to his people. And he is, moreover, the Lord your God. It's a possessive, right? The Lord your God. This phrase repeated nine times in the course of the Ten Commandments before us. Your God, your God. And even at the beginning, back in Exodus 3, verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. And he goes on to say, I am your God. That's the whole nature of this covenant by which we come to have something to do. We have some particular relationship with this God. He says, uh, you will be my people and I will be your God. That's our situation. Yes, He really is the lawgiver of every living being. He is their God. But he is in a particular sense the God of his own covenant people. And we know him by this name, Lord. And we have all the more reason then, having this special status, all the more reason to obey him. He is God to us. He is the Lord our God. And thirdly, he is our Redeemer. It says in verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Indeed, I do hope that all of you children are able to follow those three things, God, Lord, and Redeemer. Because let me say that pretty much all that you need to know about God, all that you need to know about our relationship to him is summarized in those three words. Now, the, the Lord is a very precious name to us. But let me say the fact that he is Redeemer makes us him even more precious. It says in verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Because in addition to these things, in addition to his intrinsic nature of God speaking to creatures, in addition to his being in covenant with us, different than all the rest of the world, having a special relationship with his own covenant people. God has every right to be our lawgiver by what he has done for us. Not only what he is in relation to us, but also what he has done. Now, 
Again, you have to understand, in some sense, this is utterly unnecessary. All you'd have to do is say, I'm God, listen to what I'm about to say, or else. And he'd be fully within his rights to do so. But God is reminding his people, and particularly these people, so fresh from Egypt, so fresh from being in the state of slavery, what he has done for them. And friends, we must not forget it either. As we mentioned, Pharaoh used to give them laws. What makes the Lord different? Well, instead of being a man, God is God. Instead of being a despot who has brought them under slavery, he, is, in fact, is the redeemer who is bringing them out of slavery. So, again, let us not imagine that the words we're about to read about this law are not the rules and the unrighteous and unreasonable uh, diktats of a dictator, but rather the words of a redeemer who came to set them free, came to set them free, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, That's what it was, a house of bondage. They continually forget that. We continually forget that too. Sometimes we imagine that freedom is in the world. Sometimes we think like those those crazy Israelites who are thinking about leeks and onions and the flesh pots and how great it was to be a slave in Egypt. Friends, it is false memory. False memory. Grass is always greener on the other side, isn't it? But it's not that way at all. Satan wants us to believe that the world is so wonderful. It isn't. It just isn't. Some of us here can speak very firsthand. Those who have maybe at one point thrown ourselves into the world. We can bear our own testimony that it's not that great. Actually, the pleasures of the world, the passing pleasures of sin, are very, very empty. And they come with a great bitterness thereafter. Well, no, actually the world, Egypt, was not something for them to want to live in, but something to be redeemed from. And, and the Lord, at some cost, has in fact redeemed them. Now, well, we've already spoken of the cost by which Moses was sent to redeem them, how the angel of the Lord, who was the pre-incarnate son of God, personally redeemed them out of the land. There was cost involved in that, though, and he has borne it. And I want us to see that this mighty act proved once and for all that he is able to redeem and that he has also bought them at this cost. Because for us as Christians today, we always have to be understanding that this applies to us today. We have to consider that we were in slavery to sin and to Satan. That was our situation. Right? And there's no way out of it. There, there is no way that we can get ourselves out of it. It's like some long-time alcoholic who has been in slavery or some long-time drug addict who has been in utter slavery to heroin for, for decades, imagining that just on their own they're able so easily to free themselves of it. Only worse. There have been a couple of occasions where someone, a long-time alcoholic with no external help whatsoever, has in fact gone dry. And there are a couple of occasions of those who have been on some very addictive drugs getting off on on their own. No, friends, there's not a single occasion in the whole history of the world of someone who has been addicted to sin, and that's everyone, been able to free themselves of that slavery, of that addiction, without supreme, almighty, external help. Sin is not just something we do or something we take. Sin is something that we are. We are intrinsically born sinners 
We are sinners by choice. And if ever anyone is freed from that addiction, freed from that slavery, it is because the living God has freed them. And he does so at cost. We saw a little bit, again, the cost that was born. We see the blood that was shed of all these lambs. I wonder how many. I don't know for certain how many, but it was certainly in the hundreds of thousands of lambs that were slain on that Passover night. That was cost. And all the cost that was indeed borne by the enemies of God as God brings judgment upon the land of Egypt. All of those, all of those plagues which destroyed their crops and destroyed their livestock and in the end cost them the lives of their firstborn. God said this cost is going to set my people free. And then the cost even of sustaining them in the desert. But all those things are just pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. If it was one lamb, if it was a hundred thousand lambs who, lost, who shed their blood that night and lost their lives, friends, that pointed us to the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He, at infinite cost, laid down his life in order that we might be set free, in order that we might be redeemed from slavery to sin and from its penalty. He endured the wrath of God that we might be set free. It was costly. And friends, we owe him. Our redemption did not come free came at a cost. And as if we did not owe God our perfect allegiance to his law already, merely by him being God, certainly by being our covenant Lord, how much more so do we, we owe him everything by his redemption, redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our lawgiver, our God, our Lord, and our Redeemer. And I also have three applications to these things and the first of all is pretty much is, is the very simplest and that is to be redeemed I, I wish I could say stop sinning I wish I could say look the living God who is the, the, the lawgiver he's the one who spoke to your father your first father in the garden of Eden and gave the law to him and he will be the judge of all those who have ever lived just obey him but unfortunately, as I mentioned, you can't, say, you can't undo this work of sin in yourself. You cannot extricate yourself from the land of Egypt spiritually. You have to be redeemed. And even if you were to reform your life entirely from this moment on, and never sin again, and everything that you ever did was perfectly righteous and good, you would still owe God a price that you cannot pay. The wages of sin are death. But as I say, you're still in slavery to sin. You're in slavery. Perhaps there are some here who are still in slavery to sin. And I want you to know you cannot escape it. You can be like that alcoholic and say, I can quit any time I want. No, you can't. No, you can't. And the sin that you think is isolated to one little part of your life, it's like a cancerous tumor. It's expressive of a disease that has already, in all likelihood, but will certainly spread to every part of your being. Because again, the problem is not outside. The problem is you. The problem is not the things that you say and do. The problem is your heart. It's the heart of a sinner. And that disease permeates your being. 
you're going to be saved from that, if you're going to be redeemed from it, you're not going to do it. But the good news is that there is a Redeemer who's able to do it on your behalf. Now, look, these Egyptians couldn't have saved themselves. You understand that. That's the whole point of this object lesson. Look, these things actually happened, but for our sake, they were an object lesson that we never forget about it. The object lesson was they are there, slaves, and there's absolutely nothing they could do. What are they going to do? Pick up their sticks and walk out against the, the greatest superpower that the ancient world knew? They would obviously have been crushed. They didn't even have the will to do it. They barely did so when God sent them Moses. Friends, there's no way you can do it yourself. There is a Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the strong man. No matter how much we have been subdued into a life of sin, there's a stronger man who's able to set us free. You can call upon his name. You can be sure that the God of the universe, who is infinite, that's the great thing about worshiping and knowing an infinite God. It's a great thing about his son being our redeemer, is that he has the power and the resources to do it. No, he's not like you. That's a good thing. Because he has the power to redeem all those who call upon his name, the name that has been revealed to us as the Lord Jesus Christ. So first of all, we should believe and be redeemed. Second, we need to remember in all these things the infinite distance. The infinite distance between us. Because I'm, I'm supposing that probably at all times sinful man has sought to, to shorten the distance between God and man. But if ever there was a time where that effort seems to be succeeding the most, it's probably in our own, own day. Because at all levels of society, flippancy and over-familiarity are the, the, the great watchwords or the problems of our day, right? That's what's being taught at the very beginning, that there is no difference between people uh, in their status. Now, there is no difference between them in terms of our all being image bearers of the living God. And we praise that that's being forgotten, that our status inherently is as image bearers, and whether we're, whether we're severely handicapped or or whether we're the most powerful people, we have that equal image. But as far as the roles of authority, those things are very different in accordance with God's own providence. But that has surely spilled over to our thoughts about God. You know, Psalm 50 says, These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver you. Whoever offers praise glorifies me, and to him who orders his conduct, I will show the salvation of God. Friends, that's the real God. The world makes up some sort of idol who would never, never think of saying such words. The real living holy God is not one to be trifled with. He is at infinite distance with us. And that applies to both those who are outside Christ and those who, who are believers. Okay, Because the, the root of our sin, the root of our willingness to sin, certainly for the unbeliever, there's no fear of God before their eyes. And so they do whatever they want. They trample on God's law. But so with us, even those who have been redeemed, and we have the upper hand against the old man. The Lord is winning in us. The Holy Spirit is winning. 
But the same thought occurs to us. God's maybe a little bit kind of like such a one as us. And maybe it's not such a terrible thing to trample on his law today. That's the law that, that's the, the thing that comes, unfortunately, to my mind. And what we need to do is to remember that infinite distance and therefore that infinite responsibility that we have to our God, a responsibility that is only increased if we are redeemed, if we are God's people. So we think about the, the blood of Christ shed for sin. How, how, how should we continue in it? We must remember this infinite distance and therefore this infinite obligation to obey. And thirdly and finally, maybe this is a reiteration of the second, but let me just give it a special application. We have to be really clear that the moral law is for Christians. It is for Christians. Because there is a strain of theology in churches today that is antinomian. Do you know that word? Antinomian. Right? Namos is the law, and to be anti-namos, to be antinomian, is to be against the law. And they say, you can do whatever you want. It does not matter. Now, friends, beloved, guess what? If you're a believer, you really are justified by grace alone. And that is utterly apart from any obedience to the law. Utterly apart from it. You're, you're not going to be saved by your works. You're not going to gain any status that you didn't have by your works. You're not going to earn your salvation. Your sanctification, though, is a work of God's grace. And it necessarily involves obedience to the law. What else is sanctification? Other than growing in conformity to Christ, who is infinitely holy. If you want to be like Christ, you're going to have to be holy. What is Christ's thought? His only thought day, day, from morning to evening was, I come to do your will, O Lord. His only thought was... Not my will, but yours be done. And what does that mean? It's written down here in the Ten Commandments. It's, it's written down in the moral law. Obedience to the law. And, you know, he says in John, well, various places, but John 5.30, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Friends, this is, this is our Lord. This is our example. This is our older brother. He, in fact, not at infinite distance with the Father at all. We're reminded in Philippians chapter 2 that it was not at all something to be grasped to be equal with, with God the Father because God the Father and God the Son are inherently equal. But even he, as he took on human flesh and came to be a servant, even he submitted himself to the Father. How much more so than we need to do that? Now, just to address something that I know comes across in this false theology is the idea that love is at odds with obedience. And they will say, you people who are preaching the law, you don't love like the way we love. And they say, well, I, you have your legalism and we just love the Lord. We just love the Lord. And he lets us get away with whatever. Well, friends, again, our love for the living God should not be constrained or they, they say so, you know, they imagine that our love for God shouldn't be constrained, but I want us to see that our love of God is defined by our obedience. John fifteen ten, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. That's it. 
He says, look, if you love me, let me show you what that looks like. Obedience. Obedience. Now, I don't know what you, these people have in mind when they imagine a love to God that doesn't include obedience. But it's not the Lord Jesus Christ's idea of love. Those two things are not at odds with one another. They are utterly different aspects of the same thing. Love for God and obedience to him are intimately connected, and one does not exist without the other. I'm particularly, going back to John again, I'm particularly struck by the words of John 14.31. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Right? So he's demonstrating his love, the affection that he has for the Father, precisely in his obedience. Now, again, so just to address another crazy idea, sometimes they draw some distinction between the Old Testament moral law, the Ten Commandments, and the commands of Christ, as if those things are different. And therefore, the moral law as we have it here in Exodus 20 doesn't really belong to us as Christians. We only have to obey the specific commands of Christ. But again, who's the lawgiver? Who's the one speaking? Who's the one writing these things down? Friends, the Father doesn't have a hand to write these things. He is spirit. It's a pre-incarnate son of God who has led them all this way, who has appeared to them, and who speaks to them from the mountain, and who's written these things on. And do you really think that the Lord Jesus Christ, after he's written these things, while there still is an ark, has to go in, you know, he's, oh, I forgot I'd better go, and he goes in, and he opens the ark, and he scratches these things out because, for instance, you don't have to worry about keeping the Sabbath day or something like that. It's crazy. The same one who wrote those things down in the first place is the one who is our redeemer, is the one that we, we claim to follow. So, beloved, there's no difference. There's no distinction. There's no, there's no separation between our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. If you just love Jesus then you just need to love and obey his law, which is articulated here in these Ten Commandments. Well, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, how we bless your holy name. We justify you and all of your words and all of your ways, particularly your law. We know that from the very beginning, your law was spoken against Any commandment that you gave, even the least of them, simply to keep away from one fruit out of the whole garden. It was blasphemed, it was spoken against by the liar Satan, the murderer Satan. Lord, people have been falling for these lies ever since. Now we pray, Lord, that we would not believe these things. We would not believe the lie that we can break your law with impunity. We know That not only are you the lawgiver, you are the judge of the whole earth. And you will surely bring all those who break your law, every sinner, into judgment in eternity. But Lord, you and your goodness and your great mercy and grace to sinners sent the Lord Jesus Christ to be the sin bearer, to be the redeemer, to redeem us from the slavery, the land of slavery and death in sin. Bring us into the promised land of heaven. We delight in this redemption. 
We know, we confess that we owe Christ every bit of our obedience. And how we pray, Lord, that we would cling to him as Savior and as Lord. And that you would make it our great ambition to grow daily in our obedience to this law. We confess we haven't kept it. We confess we're sinners. Lord, how we pray that you'd grant us a great love for your law. Indeed, as we relate to you as our God, our covenant Lord, and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.